0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports. My name is Keith Rathbone, and I'm here today with uh, Gerald Gems. He is the professor and formal chairperson of the Kinesiology Department at North Central College in Naperville, Illinois. And he is the past president of the North American Society for Sports History and the former vice president of the International Society for Sports History and Physical Education in Sports. And he was also a Fulbright Scholar. We're here today to talk about one of his many books, uh, Sport in the American Occupation of the Philippines, Bats, Balls, and Bayonets, which is out from Lexington Books in 2016. Uh, Welcome, uh, Jerry. How are you doing?
1: Well, thank you. I'm doing well. Thanks.
0: Thank you very much for joining us today. I I, want to start off by telling you I found your book completely fascinating and really enjoyed getting to read it. I wondered if you might start us off by just telling us how this project developed.
1: Well, thank you. Um, Well, actually, my first uh, interaction with the Philippines was uh, when I was in the military service in Vietnam. My unit got wiped out, and we were sent to the Philippines uh, for replacements because we basically didn't have enough people to function anymore. So that was my introduction to the Philippines. Uh, after the war, I lived there for a year, uh, been back there, uh, I think two or three times since then. Um, and so it, you know, the place had held some fascination for me. And once I had got some formal schooling, uh, I wanted to investigate it more knowing that the U.S. had uh, almost a half century of presence uh, in the country and well actually what happened was i you know i've had given some shorter presentations at conferences about this and then uh the editor from the lexington books i wrote another earlier book in 2005 uh, about american use of sports throughout asia and throughout the caribbean the philippines was one chapter at that point uh when the editor uh, heard the presentation he then asked me to write an entire book Uh, about the American occupation in the Philippines. And so that was really the genesis of this particular book.
0: I really found your kind of organizational structure in the the way you were making this fine-grained argument about translation and reception of sporting practices uh, really interesting. And I I wondered if you might talk a little bit more about how you see see sports working as part of this broader process of, of Americanization in the Philippines, and then we, I guess we could move on from that and talk in more specifics throughout some of your thematic chapters. But just kind of in broad senses, how you see sports working?
1: Yeah, I wanted to break it down uh, in the different factors of analysis that uh, I saw sport kind of, kind of the you know the red thread running through each of these things. In some cases, how it affected education, how it affected the economy, how it affected uh, you know um racial and class relations uh how it changed the culture all these types of things uh the religion as well so i i just saw saw sport as kind of this common uh thread in all of these different areas that were essential to the american uh, occupation of the philippines of which lasted almost a half a century
0: so your your first chapter is on on social darwinism and i thought that was a, a a kind of interesting place to start because we start in some ways back in the American mindset. So uh, can you kind of talk us through how you see sport as related to social Darwinism and and why did you start there?
1: Well, I think because uh, probably the most important factor in the relationships between the Americans and the Filipinos was, was race. And happening in the 19th century, I mean, even today, Race is still a huge issue in American culture, but it was even a bigger issue uh, back then. I mean, you had all these, um, you know, scientific theories about race and, uh, you know, kind of racial pyramids constructed by people who were considered to be the scientists of, at the time. Uh, about racial categorization and and where different groups fit in that that pyramid. And of course, these were studies done by white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, scholars who always assumed that they were the epitome, the point of the pyramid, and that They rationalized their conquest of all these different countries. So it starts with England with the biggest empire and and many of the others, Germany, France, et cetera, uh, especially in their conquering of of Africa and Asia as a rationalization for why they were at the epitome, why they were the highest race, the white race, the Anglo-Saxon race. And as they explained it as kind of the survival of the fittest And that they were destined to be at that level, and it was their so-called, this is where the religion part comes in, their Christian duty to colonize these other lands and peoples that they saw as inferior as basically a favor to them. To teach them how to become civilized like they were and advance, uh, at least in their eyes, advancing their cultures, whether those peoples wanted that or not, right? It's an argument you can still make today. Um, but that's how they saw the world, and they rationalized it on racial, racial grounds and racial theories of the
0: time. And, and sport was one of the things that helped kind of reify those hierarchies, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. One of the ways in which they compared uh, themselves to uh, other cultures and other racial and ethnic groups uh, was through sport. Okay, sport was a competition. I mean, boxing was the ultimate one-on-one competition. And so, of course, the white man had to be the heavyweight champion of the world, and it was a, a real blow to whites around the world when a black man actually captured the championship in 1908. And then there was a, a worldwide crusade to find any white man who could could beat him. But this is kind of like the – g- gives you some idea of how race became a primary factor, uh, not just in the United States, uh, but – around the world. Okay. So it it justified these imperialistic crusades, these conquerings of other people and sport became a way to test these things. All right. Um, Yes. Clearly they could test it with their technology and and come in with cannons and uh, machine guns and defeat people who didn't have that type of equipment. But sport became a way for them to play this out in a public display as a way to also uh, teach or, or try to inculcate in the colonized peoples the idea that they were superior, to have them believe it and to prove it to them publicly. This becomes problematic, however, not only for the Americans, but for other colonizing countries when the... Uh, colonized peoples start to defeat them, especially at their own games and I think you see that played out today still very much when countries like India or Pakistan defeat Great Britain in cricket it's It's a huge celebration it's a huge um, way for them to uh you know demonstrate this falsehood of this racial superiority theories
0: well, one of the great anecdotes from your book that I think illustrates this point so well that you're making, was the story about uh, the Filipino volleyball team. And I wonder if you could talk yeah, a bit about that.
1: <laughs> that was the one I thought you would pick out. Uh, yeah, this was actually happening. What what the uh, YMCA came in and what had been a, a business exhibition um, you know, trying to promote Filipino goods around the world that the Americans organized in Manila, it was called the Manila Carnival. The YMCA came in and a guy named Elwood Brown, who was the director of the YMCA, transformed uh, this, what had been the business uh, exhibition into an athletic festival, right? So the athletic festival was uh, kind of this uh, culminating activity where all the national championships in a great variety of sports were going to be contested. One of the sports was volleyball, and so a group, the Filipino, one, there were a number of teams, but the Americans had their own team. Uh, the, the the men who worked for them formed their own Filipino team. Uh, they both reached the finals of the the championship in volleyball. The Americans got upset because, again, it was one of these cases of the Filipinos who were considered to be tricksters, and Americans didn't see this as, as the proper way to... Uh, Play sport. They also had the same idea about warfare that it should be, you know, stand up confrontation, face to face, not hiding behind rocks and shooting and things like this, not guerrilla warfare. So sport becomes this form of surrogate warfare, right? So this you'll see this culminates in the the volleyball match where the Filipinos are playing around. They supposedly hit the ball fifty two times before they returned it over the net. By this time, the Americans are probably laying down. You know, they're un, uninterested. You know, whatever. Uh, and, and the Filipinos win. The Americans are greatly upset by this. They change the rules. And they change the rules to state that from now on, the Filipinos are allowed only three hits and the Americans are allowed unlimited hits. <laughs> so a way that they rewrote the rules in their favor to, again, hopefully demonstrate that the Americans were superior, that the uh, when the Filipinos won, there must be an excuse. Uh, it was trickery. Okay.
0: I, that I, when I read that, I I just laughed out loud because of, you know, the same group of people who are articulating the the values of Americanization that they want Filipinos to adopt, including fair play, then it, <laughs> then make it so that the rules are different for people on different sides of the net, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, you had a, you had a similar confrontation in boxing matches. The American Army. Uh, as soon as they came in, they started teaching the Filipinos boxing and baseball. And um, by uh, the, the 19-teens, the, the Filipinos have a number of really good boxers of their own at the lighter weights. And in fact, one of them, uh, who interestingly, this is another good story I thought, his real name was Francisco Guido. He took the boxing alias of um, Pancho Villa, uh, you know, as as many Americans might know, but maybe not others. Pancho Villa was this Mexican outlaw that invaded the Southwest uh, in 1914, the American Southwest, the Southwestern states, you know, uh, stealing cattle, killing Americans. And, and the Americans spent a couple of years, I think before they actually got into the real world war one in Europe, chasing Pancho Villa around the Southwest, never successfully capturing him. So he, so Guillermo takes this uh, name as Pancho Villa, and, and I thought that was really kind of ironic—a message he was sending to the Americans. So anyway, he uh, he ends up fighting the uh, U.S. Army champion thirteen different times. He won twelve, and the other one was a draw. He never lost. Okay, so again, it's this public display to Filipinos themselves that their own guy can defeat the Americans at their own game. Then an American promoter who discovered him takes him to the United States where he wins the world championship as a flyweight. But the American media can't believe it. There's all kinds of quotes I have in the book about things they were saying that he's not really human, nothing human can move that fast. They're trying to uh, rationalize how he actually wins by being faster than other fighters. He must be more like an animal. They're calling him a monkey and all kinds of other things suggesting that he's, you know, it's like fighting some animal in the ring. He's not really completely a human being. And so you see this racialization taking place whenever the Filipinos win. I mean, they would win baseball games sometimes against the Americans as well. But the Americans take this uh, Filipino love for football, or not football, rather baseball, what was the American national game at the time. And they're actually able to channel that, the the, the Filipino nationalism, uh, because there was a guerrilla war going on between the Filipinos and the American military uh, for 16 years there. they in, At this Manila Carnival that I mentioned before, they invited uh, the ja- a Japanese team from Wasada University to play. And the Filipino team played against the Wasada, the Japanese team. And they won in a three-game series and and from this point on the japanese and the chinese are invited to this manila carnival to compete and the japanese baseball teams as well are invited to come to the philippines the idea was to channel the filipino nationalism away from the what they saw as the oppressive americans and against the japanese who were now their enemies no longer the americans at least that was the idea and and they succeeded to a great extent in sport, the the Manila Carnival becomes so big that it was called the um, Asian Olympics uh, for some time until the Olympics threatened to sue the actual Olympics, and so they changed the name to the uh, Asian Games. But uh, this is how uh, the Japanese also got involved in uh, um, Western sport, and this they also joined the actual Olympics. I think in 1912, and by the 1930s. In the Olympic Games, they this isn't in the book, but just as, a, as an aside, they are also um, testing themselves against white athletes and, in fact, doing quite well by 1932 in swimming events and also in some of the um, track and field events. In fact, uh, they had taken over Korea by 1905, uh, taken the Korean athletes, given them Japanese names, and, a Jap- and, and one of them won the marathon race in uh, 19… Thirty-six, and that's still a a very contested um, issue among uh, the Koreans and the Japanese today uh, about Koreans not getting the recognition and Japanese and Japan claiming the recognition for that marathon winner um, during that Olympic games. So uh, it's not only the U.S., but other uh, countries have used sport as a uh, kind of a what's now called soft political power
0: yeah yeah and you you highlight that throughout the book what one of the one of the um kind of interesting things i i was seeing throughout your chapters is is the role of the u.s military in in both um bringing sport to the philippines but also making sports spaces available and not only because they thought of sports is having this kind of soft power, but also because they wanted to create spaces for Americans to compete in sports. And then later those spaces became desegregated for other reasons. And I I wondered if you could talk about what role you saw sport playing in the U.S. military at the time. You have a lot of great uh, talk in here about uh, Teddy Roosevelt and his kind of uh, his kind of work in that realm. And then later how the how the U.S. military's what their role was in bringing sports to the Philippines.
1: Yeah. Teddy Roosevelt is really a central figure, at least at the start of the story. Uh, you know, for non-Americans, he's very interesting. Well, even for Americans, he's a very interesting character. Um, he, he, you know, he, he came to power in New York state, um, and really, uh, in the Republican party, they really tried to get rid of him because he was such a pest and, and he was, he was a, a crusader for progressive reforms, uh, which didn't go well with the um, politicians, the corrupt politicians who were, you know, making a lot of money. Um, and but what happens is he uh, he, he gets assigned to the um, the as the assistant secretary of the Navy in Washington D.C. And uh, when his boss goes on vacation, he takes it upon himself to create a war plan uh, if the United States should ever go to war uh, in the, with the Spanish. Okay. And, and shortly thereafter they do, but he had already sent the, the American fleet over to the Philippines, which was a Spanish colony at the time had been for 300 years. Right. In case war broke out, he did this on his own, you know, while his secretary was on vacation. Then when the war actually does break out, uh, in Cuba initially, he forms his own uh regiment known as the rough riders cavalry regiment uh made up of uh rich guys from uh, uh who were athletes at um the best colleges in chicago what we call the ivy league not chicago rather in the united states the ivy league schools and athletes cowboys from the west where he spent a couple of years uh getting over various sicknesses when he was young uh he rushes down to cuba and and is portrayed as a war hero, which only enhances his presidential ambitions. He becomes vice president uh, when William McKinley is uh, elected president, uh, as kind of a, a measure, again, to push him off to the side. Vice presidents are usually just kind of uh, nominal figures whose careers political, political careers are then pretty much over after they serve. But what happens is William McKinley is assassinated, and as vice president, Teddy Roosevelt becomes the president. He becomes he's he's very much a proponent of naval uh, of uh, naval warfare. Of uh, this is before airplanes, okay? So the ships that rule the seas. This is how uh, England created its empire, and it's at, at the period of the eighteen nineties where the U.S. is really. Um, Uh, pushing against Great Britain to become the world power. Uh, They surpassed Great Britain economically in the 1890s, and now they need foreign markets. So Teddy Roosevelt gets in the war, comes back, uh, becomes vice president and then president, and one of the things he does is he creates this huge American fleet and sends it around the world in a, a worldwide trip for a whole year to demonstrate American power. And a lot of these things, ideas are played out in the Philippines. So he's a central figure in in making the U.S. a uh, world power and and the dominant country. Uh, you know, shortly after they take over the Philippines, which becomes. Rather apparent uh, especially in World War one, so he's largely responsible for this, and one of the things that the military does is that baseball was a national game they felt baseball was this means of creating all kinds of leadership abilities um, you know uh teamwork as well as kind of the 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 um factors that factor into a democracy to, um, and that you know baseball created this uh you know again, martial spirit, this competition, things like this, football, even more so. Teddy Roosevelt was a big proponent of American football, which even non Americans would know is a very violent game when that game was going to be uh banned because of his brutality and and many many deaths in the game. he steps in uh to try to save it because uh he feels that again, it's one that really promotes a martial spirit and leadership and what and these are the qualities that would be le- would be necessary if America was to become at least the United States was to become uh, a world leader. And so he pushes sports in particular. So all of the, the, uh, fleet, um, all the American different fleets, they had American, they had a Atlantic fleet, Pacific fleet, and the units within those fleets had baseball teams, right? Um, and they would play each other for, uh, fleet championships. And when they did, uh, Land in other countries, they might put an ex- on an exhibition of the game. But in the Philippines, they were able to uh, construct a whole military league because they were there for so long. But it was that, as I said, that and boxing were the first sports that they tried to teach the Filipinos. And the Filipinos accepted both of them quite well. In fact, even more so, the, the one that the YMCA pushed was both volleyball and. Basketball, which were games that the YMCA actually invented in the 1890s, and they pushed them all around the world. Which is why you see today one of the repercussions of that is basketball has a much bigger global presence than certainly American football or American baseball, which is still prominent uh, and it, which had been introduced throughout the Caribbean countries and in Asian countries. Um, but basketball is even more prominent worldwide through um, you know the enterprises of the YMCA. But this, as I said, this is, these were sports that the military introduced even before the American teachers came over. So the American soldiers were actually the original teachers uh, in the schools. And they, they quickly started building schools around the country and especially around the Manila area and teaching them uh, English language, um, American civics, and American sports, you know, particularly baseball, um, as a way to teach American cultural values. So the cultural values in particular that they wanted to teach is, is, again, getting back to this idea of soft power without forcing the Filipinos to do something they didn't want necessarily want to do. They concentrate on the children in the schools. Okay. Uh, Adults, because we went through the same process here in the United States and they already knew um, that, uh, Adults weren't going to change their minds about things, okay? But children's minds are still fertile. They can be changed. So we, they did this with, uh, before they even did it in the Philippines, they did it here in the United States when they took Indian, Indian children away from their parents. And they can, the first Indian school was in Car- Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which had been a former uh, army camp. And they turned it into a residential uh, school for Indian children from about 70 different tribes. And they use sports as a way to teach them particular value systems, the same things they wanted to teach the uh, Filipino children. And this worked so well that they eventually created 39 different um, Indian schools around the United States, some of them, which are still in operation today. And Canada did the same thing, created schools for Indian children. And they had to live at the school. And they largely learned the same values they were trying to teach the Americans. So what they were t- trying to teach was, first of all, capitalism. That was the basis for the American economy. They were concerned because for the previous two or three decades, we had a lot of labor conflict in the U.S., uh, uprisings, um, what they call terrorist attacks. You had a lot of socialist and communist groups forming, labor unions forming with uh, socialistic ideas or even communistic ideas. And they were concerned about this. So they wanted to teach them capitalism. So they taught them how to compete in games. Sports require competition and this competition is the is also as i said the basis for capitalism right you compete with other companies or other countries for trade and so whether these the children knew it or not they were learning to become good little capitalists next they wanted to teach them uh respect for authority okay they did that by having officials for games, umpires in baseball games, officials or referees in other games. If what happens in a soccer game? Most people in the world understand soccer. So if you argue with the referee, you get a red card, you get tossed out of the game, right? Employers love this. They wanted their, their employees to learn respect for authority, right? Um, they wanted to teach them democracy, right, which was the American form of government. So the way they did with this was through team sports, and baseball was a team sport and a national, the national sport at the time. So baseball was kind of um, um, confusing to uh, a lot of countries that they tried to install this game in. So what they tried to teach them was, um, in the form of democracy, baseball, you had a team captain. All right. You had a manager who were the leaders. They directed play. They taught others how to play. This was leadership. But if the team was going to uh, succeed, all nine players who were on the field at one time had to cooperate, similar to democracy. If democracy is going to succeed, okay, it goes by, you know, power of the people, you know, uh, they vote and who they choose. We all have to cooperate for the uh sake of the government uh, to function, although that's relatively hard today. But, okay, uh, <laughs> the other thing they wanted them to teach was individualism, which was another American characteristic. So they what they taught them was on defense, when the players are in the field, they all have to cooperate just like your family may cooperate, okay, maybe your extended family, because a lot of these people came from communal cultures, especially the Filipinos, But when they bat or hit the ball, just like in cricket, everyone gets a chance individually. And they're rewarded, if it's a professional team or semi-professional team, based on their production. Production. The better hitters would get more pay. The better hitters would get more media attention, right? And just like in the American workforce, those who produce the most, whether it was in factory work or sales or whatever else, would get paid more than other workers who did not work as hard. So they were trying to teach them work ethic, individualism, and democracy. Those are the three main factors they wanted them to learn about American culture. And they were pretty successful about that.
0: I, I think you also did a great job. I, I, I Throughout, your, your, you were always doing a great job of pointing out the power of sport as kind of an educational tool. Um, but one of the things that I found really interesting is how they were trying to instill Western that. Va- va- the values of western masculinity as well um that filipinos were were simultaneously seen as as dangerous with these bolo knives that they would hide and maybe at- attack american soldiers um, but that also they were effeminate and so uh, there's this weird kind of um, non-western masculinity that was confusing to the american authorities so they wanted to instill their particular version of masculinity in sport was a bit, is a good way to do that right
1: yeah and I think this this is still a problematic for the U.S. today the U.S. goes into countries uh they're not familiar with the culture you can see this in the Mideast uh they are ethnocentric in their value sisters assuming assuming that American values are, are would benefit everybody and in actuality a lot of other people are perfectly happy with their culture and don't want to change um but there was a during this time the late 19th century there was a real crisis of masculinity in the United States uh, For the first time women's colleges were opened women were able to uh, take part in classes with men and uh, some of the co-ed colleges or at least co-ed classes and actually showing them up uh, women started playing sports like baseball which uh, you know men were very upset about women start riding bicycles and this got really problematic by the 1880s because, bicycles were were fast that you, you could go uh you know at great speed right there were women trick riders who uh d- did stunts that most men could not do you had vaudeville which became very popular from the 1880s onward and you, where you had women weightlifters who were lifting more weight than men than most men could possibly lift there were women boxers by the late 19th century two of them I've you know written about this as well in another book Two of them actually challenged the male champions. I mean, obviously, the males didn't fight them. They had nothing to win. But men felt besieged by the by feminization at the time. Women wanting rights. Women wanted to vote. Okay. Um, they, they, in addition to suffrage rights, they wanted equal rights. They wanted to be able to hold property. They they wanted temperance because uh, men basically owned their property. A husband could de- demand sex from his wife and just abuse her if he wanted to. And so they felt a lot of that was due to alcohol. And this is why so many women were in the temperance movement trying to do away with alcohol, which they finally did, but temporarily. So there was this great fear among men, especially when women start riding the bicycles. When you think about a bicycle, they had these big, you know, before that hoop skirts and things, they couldn't be very active. But when they started riding bicycles, they start wearing bloomers and they start wearing pants. And you've heard the term, who wears the pants in the family? Men got very upset about women wearing pants that they felt they were really taking over American or male fashion as well as American sports and challenging men uh, in the political sphere and you know, in in schools. Uh, Even in the professions, women started becoming doctors and lawyers and other types of things at this time. So men were very concerned at this time. Um, And so they wanted to characterize the Filipinos as uh, effeminate, all right, Uh, which they try to do. And one of the ways in which they did this, uh, it's it's too bad that I couldn't have um, photos in the book because uh, one of the guys who's the main character in the uh, uh, book, Dean Worcester, who's the secretary of the interior for a number of years- was also writing many articles for the National Geographic and it were, this was around just before uh, World War I started when they started using color photography and I have a, a great number of slides from the National Geographic during the period where he was characterizing the Filipinos as a feminine he had um, you know photos of particular tribesmen who wore uh, what you know what, what Americans would call a skirt and also a very colorful um, clothing, you know, bright red, yellow, things like that, uh, that American men who wore only black or white would consider feminine, only women wear, you know, colored clothes. Uh, this particular guy that he featured also had, uh, you know, uh, longest hair and earrings. Uh, you know, today that would, would, you know, would be a norm for many cultures. But uh, he characterized this as very feminine. He also had a narrow waist. And so he took all these different physical characteristics of this particular guy to demonstrate the femininity of Filipino tribesmen. So there were many ways in which he did that, uh, you know, and diminished Filipinos as, as, uh, he called the Negrito tribe as, you know, basically, uh, the missing link between apes and, and human beings. So he was the most hated of all the American officials over there. And he, he continually, uh, you know, after even he left his job in the Philippines under very scandalous circumstances, he was always enriching himself and his son and his brother um, through various schemes. Uh, he finally is forced to leave, but then he comes back on a lecture tour of the U.S. with these these slideshows and these articles and things characterizing the Filipinos as very feminine, but yet wanting them uh, to become masculine. Uh, and and this this also had a military purpose because. Uh, Very early on, what I discovered in going through the archives and the uh, uh, national records at the Library of Congress was that as early as 1905, the Americans realized that they were potentially going to have to fight a war with Japan. And they had war plans already by 1905. I've seen these in the archives. Uh, Japan was also... uh, on a quest to become a world power. They had Westernized over the latter half of the 19th century after, you know, the Westerners forced their way into Japan and realized they would have to, if they were going to compete, but they were starting to compete. You see in 1895 already, they defeat China in a war and they felt, and then, and and, well, that was 1895. Then in 1905, they defeat uh, Russia in a war right so they felt that the pacific territory should belong to them they should be the dominant power in the pacific so when the u.s moved into the philippines and stayed the japanese saw this as a threat which is why they were so happy to play the filipino teams in baseball because baseball was also their national sport um so as i said the, the Teaching the Filipinos to become more masculine in the American sense and becoming more militaristic, the Filipinos would also, by the 1930s, start their own version of West Point Military Academy uh, to produce military officers. And we see eventually this uh, um, tension between the U.S. and uh, the Japanese being played out in the Philippines in these ball games, and you had American baseball teams who would not only uh, barnstorm to the Philippines but also to Japan to play games there. And in fact, in the 1930s, the Japanese call for a, a truly uh, world professional league so that they could play against the Americans. And uh, this doesn't happen, of course. The, the Japanese do start their own professional league in the 1930s, uh, but then uh the Filipinos end up being kind of like the safeguard, the, the frontier boundary for the Americans, knowing that this war is going to take place. And it does take place with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And then the Filipinos uh, – uh, inv- excuse me, the Japanese invade the Philippines, right, which is kind of the boundary, the frontier that they have to go through first before they can actually attack the west coast of the United States, which – Really doesn't happen. There's only one instance where a Filipino submarine shot some rockets or something into California, Oregon, some of the western states. But that was the only aggression that that actually happened on uh, American soil. But the Mar- Americans saw this coming, and as I said, they had a they had a war plan already manufactured, uh, in, you know, very early in the twentieth century for Japan.
0: You bringing up uh, the Waseda team visiting the Philippines really uh, reminds me that. You know, we've been talking so far about what the Americans were doing and what their interests were in bringing sports and why you know they wanted to inculcate certain values to prop up the Philippines as their as their colony to promote um, the economic valor of the of the colony to prepare them as this kind of military frontier. But there are also the Filipinos who had their own interests. Right. <laughs> and I think your work does a lot to show um the ways in which filipino uh different groups within the philippines different tribal groups the igalot the negrito uh, but also different social groups like the ilustrado are are adopting different sports practices uh to suit their own purposes and and that the americans are are able to inculcate uh, certain values or bring certain sports but not others um, and they're able to to stamp out some traditional practices but not others like cockfighting remains ex- extremely popular so I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about w- what the Filipinos are doing how they're adopting or not adopting certain practices and for what purposes they're doing
1: yeah um, so I mean uh, scholars we have to realize that this imposition of value systems is not a one-way process people have choices okay so this is part of my theoretical framework in the book uh, this what's called hegemony theory okay the 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 Filipinos have choices. They they can uh, accept what the Americans tell them or try to get them to do. They can totally reject it, which is what, you know, the uh, Filipino army uh, did and and fought this guerrilla war for, you know, 16 years. Um, or they can adopt it or they can adapt it. And what the Filipinos do is they, they basically take what they want from the American culture. They uh, – accept some of it. They adopt some of it, but they also adapt it. Okay. So basketball, you could see it the way they play basketball. Okay. And most Filipinos aren't very tall. Okay. But they play a faster game outside shooting and things like that. Uh, so it's not dominated by a big man. Uh, and, Phil- and, and basketball is the most popular sport still in the Philippines today. But one of the other techniques that the um, Americans did, well, two things. They, and they still use this in, in places like Afghanistan today. They take the native Filipinos and they train them. And what they did was they would take some of the tribes, and, and still there are many different tribal groups in the Philippines today, who were enemies of others that they were trying to pacify. And they would train them as the local police, called the constabulary, and then they would have them enforce the rules rather than have uh, you know the arrests and even you know imprisonment and things like that and even some killings so that the Americans themselves wouldn't be blamed. And so this is exactly what they've been doing in Afghanistan as well. They create a, uh, you know, um, a national constabulary, which basically carries out the orders of, you know, the Americans, but it's their own people, you know, imposing it on them rather than visibly the Americans doing so. The other thing they did was they took what were called, uh, the illustratos, the upper class of the, uh, uh Philippines. These were uh, usually mestizos who were half Spanish. Um, They were the upper class. They owned most of the property. They were the uh, ruling elites, the people who had political offices uh, under the Spanish. And they took the children of those families and they brought them to the United States. And they sent them to the American colleges that educated them in the American systems, uh, English language, democracy, uh, American sports, And then they sent them back to the Philippines where they became the next generation of leaders. What the result of that is that by courting just this one class, it was not a true democracy. It becomes what, what is still in effect an oligarchy and a plutocracy in uh, the Philippines today. There are basically about 60 different families who all emanate from this period of, you know, over a century ago who still basically control uh, the Philippines today. They own, uh, you know, most of the businesses they derive most of the income and so you still got a lot of people living living in poverty where a sm- very small group of people run the country and get very rich doing so.
0: I think definitely um, the the ability of, of Filipinos to adapt or adopt reject or, or, or take on wholesale uh, comes through with their interactions with the YMCA, right? Because the YMCA is trying to promote a particular religious type of practice through sport, but Filipinos seem to uh, adapt to the sport, but completely reject most of the religious instruction that might come alongside it. Right?
1: Exactly, because the uh, the the American bureaucracy and the American government at the time was was completely Protestant. Okay, you don't even have a a, a non-Protestant run for a presidency until the 1920s uh you know a catholic from new york and he's thoroughly defeated he has no no chance um and so there's this very much this protestant ideology i mean one of the things i thought was very ironic and almost comical was that they immediately sent all kinds of protestant missionaries over there and they were going to convert the 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 filipinos to, to christianity i mean they had been a colony of the spanish who were ardent Catholics for 300 years. They were Christians already, but their version of Christianity wasn't the proper version as the Protestants saw it. So they were gonna try to convert them. That didn't work out very well. Um, They converted very few uh, actual Filipinos, but the YMCA, and most people today don't realize this, the YMCA today is, is kind of like any other health club. But at this time, the YMCA was a very strong Protestant proselytizing organization who sent missionaries all around the world using sport as a way to attract young men and then preach their Protestant values to them. And this is what the YMCA tried to do there. And it was really kind of amazing how close the YMCA worked with U.S. government. In, in the United States, there's supposed to be a complete separation between church and state. But in the Philippines, the YMCA was allowed to uh, write the manuals for the schools, be on the school board, uh, run the playgrounds and parks organizations to set up all kinds of things. Uh, They got the best land, which they got at least of a thousand years uh, and to create their YMCA buildings. But where the YMCA fell short and what became very evident to the Filipinos, even though they preached all these things about fair play, and 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 proper sport they still practice segregation just like they did in the United States, and so they built separate y m c a buildings for Filipinos and for chinese they could they were allowed to play against the Americans in these games, but they weren't allowed to live with them in the dormitories and and The Filipinos saw this as an obvious uh hypocrisy you know you you're 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 preaching all these American values about democracy. And yet we're held in a subservient position, and we can't even sit down and eat with you. In fact, the American uh, governors general and other uh, administrators uh, very reluctantly even interacted with the Ilustrado families, they, they, and 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 this came about through sport because uh, what the Americans did, they copied what the British did in India. It was too hot in Manila for the Americans, just like it was too hot uh, for. Of the British in India. And so they went up in the mountains and constructed a uh, summer capital in a place called Baggio Resort Town. And Cameron Forbes, who was the governor general at the time, a very wealthy guy, um, took his own money. He built a polo field and a golf course up there. But then in order to uh, keep these things going, they had to create real estate lots, which Worcester went up there ahead of time and and bought up a lot of the lots, then he could sell them in a profit. He knew what was going on ahead of time. Uh, They had to sell them to wealthy Filipinos, right? So they they started to interact socially through sport. Uh, Eventually they would get invited to some dinners and dances and things like that. Uh, But that was kind of rare. So segregation was practiced throughout the society, uh, except in the brothels, okay? They had the biggest brothel in the world in the Philippines, which was even uh, attended by one of the governor generals and uh one of the who became one of the filipino presidents so it was quite well known around the world uh the philippines becomes this exotic and erotic tourist vacation or you know place for american vacationers um so as i said the filipinos uh adopted but also adapted Uh, many of the characteristics of American culture uh, to their own culture. And so, and you still see that today. So, as I said, you can still see uh, the American economy at work. You can see American shop, American style shopping centers and things over there. Uh, But yet it's still not a true democracy. And and that's very easy to see through the dictators. And they've got one again, uh, you know, who have come to power uh, in the Philippines.
0: I'd I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about this kind of long history uh, of American sports influence in the Philippines. In particular, um, you know, so much of your book is about the popularity of of American baseball. And at the time, it seemed like baseball was king. And then all of a sudden, there's a bit of a shift in which Manila seems to urbanize. And a lot of the baseball fields, uh, the diamonds start to go away and basketball becomes... Becomes king, and I, as I understand it from reading your book, basketball is still uh, by far one of the most popular sports in the in the Philippines. So I'm wondering if you can talk more about what kind of long legacies U.S. sports policies had in the Philippines, and, and what things didn't ever change. Like why couldn't they ever get rid of cockfighting? I don't it, it,
1: cockfighting it, was was the sport of the the uh, you know the peasants. Okay, and it was how they made their extra money by betting on on the cockfights every week. And Americans, because it was this Protestant mentality that gambling was wrong, they wanted to wipe out anything uh, with gambling, you know. But uh, they could not wipe this out. This was ingrained in the culture, and it was it was an economic factor uh, as well. There's a very famous um, article on cockfighting in uh, by an anthropologist in. Uh, Indonesia, and and this was a Muslim society, and and part of the uh, Philippines was as well. Mindanao and uh, the southern islands were Muslim, and so you know they there was a caste system and things among Hindus, and the only way that they could gain any respect was if their rooster beat the chief's rooster, and then you know till the next time they have a fight for one week, they not only won all the bets and the money, but they've got some what you know we now call social capital in the village, you know because they were able to, you know, even though socially, they're not equal to the chief, at least in this one instance, they are for for a temporary period of time. But this is why they couldn't wipe out cockfighting. And it still goes on there today. But as you said, as Manila urbanizes, okay, fields are lost. uh, When the American military pulls out, okay, baseball is is no longer uh, the major sport, the Filipinos uh, take to basketball. And so basketball becomes and still is the national sport over there. They're very interested in the American NBA, uh, with social media. They're big fans. They, they, uh, there's the, some of the literature about the Philippines today and sports. Um, few scholarly studies have been done. The latest one is, is about, uh, basketball in the Philippines, but, uh, so basketball, uh, remains the major sport. Uh, baseball dies out, except baseball in certain pockets is still uh, very prominent. In the Visaya Islands, which is in the central Philippines, these are the areas, I think, that still send uh, Filipinos to the Little League World Series. Um, and 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 for a number of years, they had won until there was a scandal where they could not produce um, – Uh, this is maybe 15 years or so ago, they could not produce birth certificates to verify the ages of the kids. And so they thought the Filipinos were cheating with overage pitchers and things like that. Um, this has happened in another instance where, you know, now they're trying to promote baseball in Africa, which would be the next cheap labor market. Uh, but they've got, a a, you know, a major league baseball clinic. In Ghana, I think it is, but the, the kids couldn't come because they couldn't produce birth certificates. And so, uh, but again, this is how the soft power works. The American economy, and especially sports agents and sports um, um, owners, are looking for cheap uh, labor force. You know, they can't get that anymore in most countries that have become part of the uh, global economy. But Africa is still an area where soccer players as well come cheap. And so this is the area where they're focusing on, and they're not the only country doing this there's you know there are many others I mean a small oil country uh or like Qatar has uh what's called the Spire Academy, where they bring in mostly African kids uh, with world class facilities, hoping they 'll become citizens, and most of their under twenty soccer team is already uh non qataris and uh, if you paid much attention to the Olympics, uh, I think Bahrain was another one. United Arab Emirates, two other small uh, Arab countries, uh, whose uh, track runners made it to the semifinals in some of the uh, some of the events. So basically, they're buying athletes from other countries because they're wealthy enough to do that.
0: Well, I I really encourage everyone uh, if you're interested in the history of sport in the Philippines in particular, or just interested in, in a work on cultural hegemony and how certain technologies or tools um, can be shared between a more hegemonic power and a less hegemonic power. Um, Then you pick up uh, Gerald Jem's book, Sport and the American Occupation in the Philippines, Balls, Bats and Bayonets out from Lexington in 2016. Uh, Jerry, can you tell me a little, we were talking about this before the interview started, but can you tell me a little bit about your next project?
1: Yeah, I've actually got two projects going on. Um, right now, I'm, I've been working um, uh, for part of the past year at least for about a book on the role of sport in uh, promoting urban identities. And so I'm, I'm re- really kind of using the organizational pattern of the Philippines book uh, in Chicago, looking at some of the similar factors like uh, what's the physical identity of the city? What's the uh, economic identity of the city? What's its racial identity? What's its uh, social class identity? What's its religious identity? What's its gender identity? And trying to see how sport weaves through all these things and eventually getting to the fans uh, and how these things coalesce into an identity for any particular uh, city and what that means economically. I mean, at least here in the U.S., if you don't have a major team in every uh, professional sports league, uh, you're not considered big time and this is where and this is these are the ones that generate a lot of money this is where the players want to play these are the kinds of things that give you world-class status so that's one of the uh books that i'm working on now and i'm uh, maybe a little bit more than halfway through with that and then i gave a presentation on uh, sport and aging uh, up in canada a couple months ago and a publisher from another university press uh, asked me to take that and turn that into a book and I said, gee, I told him, I, you know, I've, I'm still working on this other one. I need to get finished. And that's going to take me the rest of the year, uh, maybe longer. And for me to really research this whole area and put together a whole non- nother book uh, would take a couple of years. I said, let me make a proposal. And I came back to him with a different idea. You know, I said, I have a lot of friends around the world. Just came back from a conference in, in Germany um, and solicited a number of people into what I'm going to try to do. Is take a number of people that I know have aged successfully, and from a number <laughs> of from a number of different uh, different uh, cultural groups in different countries. So I got people from uh, Australia, from Egypt, from South Africa, from Scandinavian countries, European countries, Americans. Uh, and what I'm going to try to do is put this together in an anthology, and then try to see if there are any common characteristics or common strategies that people have used. Um, and what role sport, or at least physical activity might've played in that, uh, to see if that could be helpful to, you know, a wider range of people around the world. So that's the other book I'm working on, but that one's still just in its, uh, well, it's not in the planning stages. I've already got, uh, um, one, uh, draft from one of the authors already and the others are working on it. So I anticipate that that will, um, uh, finish up next summer.
0: Sounds like both of those books will have great audiences, uh, uh, especially the latter book will have a particular audience, but maybe. Yeah,
1: that, w- that was the feeling of the editor as well, that there aren't any books out like this, and so he'd like to be the first. So that was kind of the impetus for pushing me to, to get it done.
0: Hey, and as populations age, uh, uh, that book gets more and more timely every day. I think we'd all like to stay active into our, into our older age, and how do you do that is uh, an interesting question.
1: Yeah, well, uh, part of it is, you know, what, uh, the French sociologist philosopher Pierre Bourdieu called habitus and a lot of it it's uh, and that's built in usually by the time you're eight years old depending on the social class that you grew up in so that's an interesting factor of analysis to look at and that's the other thing I'm trying to do I'm trying uh, I grew up in a working class family and one of the people my mother's 93 years old I'm gonna have her write a chapter uh the whole <laughs> outlook uh, uh depending on what class you grew up in is very different and how you see the world and and she's got a very interesting perspective on that, I think.
0: <laughs> Great. Thanks. Thanks so much, Jerry. So uh, if if you've been listening, that's been um, G- Gerald Gems or Jerry Gems, professor and former chairperson of the Department of Kinesiology at North Central College in Naperville, Illinois. And we were here talking today about his uh, excellent book, Sport in the American Occupation of the Philippines, Bats, Balls, and Bayonets. Uh, I'm Keith Rathbone from Macquarie University. Thank you all very much for listening and have a great day.